In an industry that relies on being ahead of the curve, the ability to see the potential in new innovations is a necessity. Eric Anderson, partner of Scale Venture Partners, knows how to look ahead and gives us an inside look at how a cutting-edge venture capital firm finds and funds new technology that benefits the everyday user. We try and find things that are right on the cusp of, they've been adopted by users, there's early revenue, and it's on the cusp of potentially exploding. That's where we often call it founder-led growth. So founders are the ones doing the sales, but they haven't quite figured out how to bring in a sales team. That's the like sweet spot for us. While we do get pretty excited about founders who have some vision, I think seeing that the product is being adopted is the big thing. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Eric explains how Scale Venture Partners finds that special something in fledgling tech companies and why that sweet spot is so imperative. Enjoy this episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries, and today we have a special guest. Whenever we have people on the venture side, I always get excited because they have a unique perspective on the tech world at large. He is one of the partners at Scale Venture Partners, Eric Anderson. Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. It's great to be here. All right, right out the gate, we let all of our guests tell our audience exactly what you guys do. Scale Venture Partners, we know that VC firms did, you know, often have different focuses. Please let us know, what are you guys focused on? We're a Bay Area venture capital firm focused on early stage investments, mostly in B2B software. Is there any particular reason why you choose to spend your time focusing on B2B? It's where our background uh, as partners comes from. And, and also, I think it's historically been an underappreciated asset. B2B software used to be kind of enterprise software was boring, ugly, uh, <laughs> annoying. It still is, by the way. It still is. It, it still is. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> We're trying to make enterprise cool again. But um, yeah, all, all the attention was on consumer. But with the advent of... Uh, Snowflake and the continued progress of Salesforce, I think people are like, wow, this is it's where the money's at. Yeah, no doubt about it. When you're solving massive problems, it's also you help. There's usually big budgets allocated to solve big problems. It's the best way to think of it for anyone out there that's probably on the newer on the tech development side. You know, one of the things that's always interesting, and I'd love to hear your perspective on this, when it comes to enterprise or B2B software, there's a multiple challenges. One, understanding the problem at hand right? So it typically requires some level of domain experience that you've been there before and seen something happen. Uh, we hear about the famous story of Aaron Levy at Box, right? Like he was at a motion picture studio when he fa- figured out that this is a ridiculous way to trade files, right? Unless you're there, you won't know that that's a problem. But then there's a couple other challenges along the way, which is like scaling trust issues. Like enterprises don't like investing in fads. I remember filling out RFPs where they ask you like, well, how much money do you make? Like, they want to know that you're big enough to support them. So when you're think, dealing early stage, you know, that's so far away often from what the product is going to be. What are some of like the key tenants you guys are looking for when you're, when I'm thinking like early stage B2B, I'm imagining when you invest in these companies, they're so far away from where they're going to be. Right. And, and let me qualify early stage for, for our purposes a bit. Uh, we look at companies who are on the cusp of revenue or have, have earned their first revenue. The, the risk of a, of a company just dramatically drops once you've kind of found product market fit, or at least you've, you've found a couple of customers. And that's one indication that gets us pretty excited. 
I think you nailed it on another one, which is some level of domain expertise. I think when we find people who've had this problem themselves, have wrestled with it, as opposed to someone who's kind of been opportunistically looking for a place to start a company, that passion is able to fuel people for the, like you pointed out, next eight years we need in order to, to see the kind of exit we're looking for. Yeah, because a lot of times during the build-up process, I remember my early stages in enterprise software is like every time you got to, let's say, a shipped feature set and you'd have a stable base of customers that were pretty happy, you inevitably run into, you know, more customers that wanted more. Uh, it was never done. You know what I mean? And it's always a big challenge and then new, new business challenges. When you think of that domain expertise, are there any particular areas where you're listening for, you know, more problems or understanding of problems? Like how do you guys evaluate the problem set? Because, you know, obviously that you guys have to recognize that problem set as the opportunity. So not only do we want founders with domain expertise, but we'll go out and, and try and do our own interviewing of, of like prospects and customers and try and develop some empathy for the problem. The depth of the problem is almost more important than the depth of the solution in some respects, because you have eight years to continue to, to iterate on a solution. But if there isn't a lot of something to solve, then yeah, you, you may, may run out of runway on the idea. So, so yes, we'll go to customers, prospects and develop some empathy. And, and so part of my time is just maintaining or developing relationships with buyers of business software. I live in a world mostly of VPs of engineering, developers themselves, more on the technical side. And so I, I try and maintain relationships with folks building software and buying software to help them. Obviously, everyone that comes on our show has, it, it touches software or development in some capacity. We've seen desire to fix supply chains. We've seen desires to make DevOps better, you know, better infrastructure tools. We've seen that. Security certainly keeps coming up over and over again in regards to like more investment there, more investment in machine learning and artificial intelligence to figure out business problems. Those are obviously huge broad categories. Are there, is there any category specifically that you're starting to see like bubble up as like, hey, this is becoming a bigger problem for devs, like they need more support here? Yeah. And, and maybe I'll, I'll go back to you quickly, your broad categories, and then give you a, a couple specific ones. All software used to be sold on, on what we called on-premises, sold as a, a license. And then there was the SaaS revolution for the last two decades. If you bet on anything in the last two decades, it would have been to bet on software as a service. And so now the question is for us is like, is there another kind of revolution like that to watch? And, and one thing we're keeping an eye on is, is just the use of machine learning. And I know that that's people talk about it all the time. We call them cognitive apps that machine learning and artificial intelligence could represent a similar broad investment opportunity. In the case of SaaS, every kind of category of software saw a new big exit. Salesforce replaced its Siebel. And now we're, you know, is there kind of like an AI ML enabled CRM or in the case of, you know, the developer stuff I look at, is there an AI or ML enabled solution for testing code, for quality assurance, for security? And, and I think in all those categories, it kind of feels like there probably is. Yeah. We just had the CTO of Ansys. They make engineering simulation software. So it's like, if you wanted to build a, uh, like a wing for a plane, what type of materials, which instead of going to clay modeling and putting in a wind tunnel, you can model in software and in machine learning and, and AI would help identify your variables and your wind speeds and all this stuff. And he was talking about the time development shrinking in every single group that we talk to that's like that. They're all developing their internal tools. And then we also meet tech founders like outside of them, like scale AI, and they're just building AI for AI. Like they're like, we're going to help everyone who wants to implement AI 
do more AI. So there's definitely a race there. And that seems like one of the big green fields where as far as we've come, the, the development has just begun. And, and I always joke with our guests about it, like, all of us have had that experience. Maybe I'll use banking software where it's like you're supposed to put in a natural language input. Like I'm going to call out Bank of America because we invited them on the show a bunch of times. They still haven't said yes. But their help app, Erica, doesn't understand anything. Yes, yes. Thankfully, the, the robots aren't going to take over anytime soon. Yeah, that's not a risk. So one of the things I'm curious from your perspective, like what looks like something groundbreaking? Is that like kind of what you see, like groundbreaking innovation? Or do you see like more like hey, I think I have a groundbreaking founder. Like the way this person thinks is different than everyone else. I think this person will reach an answer before someone else. Like how, how do you evaluate it? Given the stage that we invest, like I said, where we try and find things that are right on the cusp of they're being adopted by users, there's early revenue and it's on the cusp of potentially exploding. That's where we often call it founder-led growth. So founders are the ones doing the sales, but they haven't quite figured out how to bring in a sales team. That's the like sweet spot for us. And so we, while we do get pretty excited about founders who have some vision, I think seeing that the product is being adopted is the, is the big thing. And revenue is not always the, the leading indicator. It's often like uh, how, how active are our users in the application? Uh, if it's an open source project, like who's using it, who's excited about it as much the, the chatter and enthusiasm about the product is, is, is as much indication, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at your like logarithmic growth scale behind you. I don't know if it's actually logarithmic, but I'm just calling it logarithmic because it kind of has a logarithmic curve on it. And I'm thinking to myself, because you're right, because at the early stages, that's the flat part. No one really knows that this thing is going to pop. Like the growth is very slow. And so you're looking for these key indicators. Are there any specific sectors? I'm curious about like, you know, you mentioned before applications to help developers specifically. Are there any subsectors within that besides AI and ML that you see start seeing there's a lot of buzz around? Any new emerging sectors that maybe the population at large isn't too familiar with? Yeah. So let's talk about, um, because it's so exciting, compliance uh, for a moment. Uh, you know, I think in the past, we haven't, we haven't really worried about that. Like people just, is, if the code builds and it shipped, like if it runs, ship it. We now live in a world very quickly where software is being regulated at kind of new and unprecedented levels, starting with privacy, but increasingly people won't buy software B2B without security credentials. You know, they want to see compliance and frameworks that you're adhering to. So there, there's a big boom going on for ways that can help developers and development teams kind of automatically certify that they're using good security practices, that they're staying privacy compliant. But while it sounds boring, these things drive meaningful revenue. Like you, you can accelerate sales. If you're SOC 2 compliant, people will buy much faster. And so if you can slap that on your software, it's a big deal. It's like unsexy business, like insurance. But yet, if you look around, every insurance company is huge you know? <laughs> because it's required. No, I can totally see that in regards to compliance. What about like the people that are entering the problem? Because we kind of hinted at it before. When it comes to B2B software, it generally... Is generally people that have domain experience, so they have some type of working experience. Do you see younger entrants, like people trying to take on internships early to find the problems to come out and try to fix them? Like, do you see any type of shift in the age of the founders, or does it still require quite a bit of working experience before you find a problem to hit? And like, you know, someone like Aaron Levy is more of an outlier. Uh, no, I mean we see it across the board. I have yet to see a real pattern around age. There are Aaron Levies. I, I talked to someone just out of college three days ago. He's got a, a fascinating company and his, his domain experience, uh, expertise comes from a family business. Like he basically, he and his family doing a certain thing. 
And so he had a natural inclination towards it out of college. And then I think in enterprise, though, you do see repeat founders and founders late in life. I think we've got somebody in their 60s who's rocking it. And I, I, maybe as a, as a board member, you start to wonder if like we, we need to think about what's the long term risk here. But but for now, it's fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. 60 and still hungry. Well, that that there's a lot of people that have like a predispositions to believe VCs want to look for specific characteristics. I'm glad you just threw that out the window. It's like, no, nah, it's all about founder-led growth. If the idea is right, you've got a little traction, doesn't matter your age. Yeah. I mean, it just is uh, to kind of make that more concrete. I did mention we have somebody in their 60s in the portfolio. And then also we invested in Box. So we backed Aaron Levy, you know, seemingly as a kid. And, and so we, I think we covered the spectrum. For that person that you just recently encouraged to uh, pursue their passions, may I ask what category that that's in? This is the person just out of college that, that I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, their, their family is a dental distributor. They sell that, you know, provide dentists with all the kind of raw materials they need. And apparently it doesn't surprise me. The world of uh, distributor software is not great. And who, who better to know than someone who kind of grew up in the business? <laughs> no, that's exactly it. Right. If you, if you're not from there, why would you ever recognize that there's a problem there? And, and, and you probably do need somebody young enough to appreciate what good software might look like uh, to kind of bring to kind of upend an industry that's a bit sleepy. Yeah, it, because you've had maybe uh, decades of users that are just like, well, this is just the way it is. Right. When you think about the pace of innovation, because obviously you're seeing how things are changing, you're obviously investing in companies that are going to make it. Some of them don't, but you're still seeing how things are changing around all these portfolio companies. Where are we going towards? Like, are people, you know, one of the big things people, for example, worry about all the time is, am I going to get replaced? Are jobs going to be increasingly more automated to the point where there's no need for people? It's been a fear for a long time. Where do you see work change transforming the most? Because obviously, like in the last two years, we've gone from centralized work to remote work, hybrid work. Hybrid work's probably here to stay. We're introducing more AI and ML. We got things like robotic process automation that are taking away repetitive tasks. How do you envision the future of work? Like, what's that going to look like in the next 10 years? Yeah, the, the, the concerns around automation, I'm less worried about. I, I think people have been, we've been automating work for, for decades. And, and if we didn't, we'd all be working in factories at the moment. Uh, or, or even earlier, we'd all be on farms. And um, thanks to automation, food is much more abundant. And, and thanks to uh, manufacturing, now kind of physical products much more abundant. As long as we're able to continue to retrain ourselves for new work, we can. We can move into things that people find more interesting. And this is what powers our kind of interest around the cognitive apps I mentioned earlier, which are the machine learning embedded stuff that will automate. Historically, we automated uh, kind of physical work and now we're automating knowledge work. As far as like, how, how is that going to change work? One thing to think about is where, where can automation happen? I think it happens at the interfaces of when work becomes digital. I guess what I mean by that is, it was hard to, to like automate or help sellers because sellers were in person. They were talking to people. How do you, you know, how do you shake hands? But now we, we, we sell over Zoom and now we can have AI kind of listen into our sales calls. We can have it record our sales calls and compare every, every person in the team sales calls. Like now that works digital, um, there's an opportunity to kind of coach, automate, help uh, salespeople be more effective. And so you can take those digital interfaces where work gets done and kind of think of where you can plug more AI in. For developers, it's probably the pull request. That's where the work on my local machine kind of passes through a digital interface to the rest of the organization. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious to find stuff like solutions that are kind of automated at the pull request stage 
generating their own pull requests, like assessing security at the pull request, all those ideas. We had a guest on that's kind of in a similar space, Apiro. They actually, they are testing the code as you write the code. Before it's shipped to the main code base, it's already testing it. Like what vulnerabilities does it, is this code going to create? When you think about how these things are changing and, you know, I'd love for our audience to learn a little about you yourself. You have a really cool background. You got both comp sci and mechanical engineering in your background. And one of the fun things we looked up on your LinkedIn is people said like, you're really good at making stuff. It sounds like you got your recommendation. <laughs> you got lots of recommendations for manufacturing. So like this guy knows how to make stuff. Give our audience an idea of your background. You started at University of Utah. It looks like you got a BS in mechanical engineering. How did you get into the computer side? Because uh, it looks like Stanford shortly followed. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I did. I always wanted to make stuff, and I still, still kind of identify mostly as a, as a builder, as a maker. In college, I made a bicycle uh, with my brother-in-law. It's called the Madsen cycle. It has a big giant bucket on the back. In fact, I've got one in my garage, and I will take my kids to school and, and to the store in it. It's fantastic. But I think I was always kind of also interested in computers and I felt like there was an opportunity for maybe even bigger impact with software. So quickly after graduating, I was working at GE Aviation where things hadn't changed for 20, 30 years in some cases. And I was like, I think I want something more dynamic. I learned how to, I kind of taught myself further how to code, built some, at the time it was all about mobile apps, built some apps that got Amazon excited during a job interview, ended up in at AWS on EC2 as a product manager. And I realized just how th this was before AWS had broken out their earnings. And I was like, wow, we are just printing money. Like this is, this is incredible. <laughs> I, 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 the whole world doesn't realize that like Amazon is going to be a server company more than it's going to be a, an e-commerce company. Based on those apps, you got recruited at AWS or did you apply and try to get a job there? Yeah. So I, I went to business school and this was for my summer internship during business school. They came to campus. And so I, I kind of a mix of applying and recruiting, I suppose. So I just kind of like happened into the cloud. That wasn't really the plan. And then uh, my manager uh, left uh, AWS and ended up at Google where Google was kind of launching their cloud. And so I followed after business school to kind of get on the ground floor of the next big AWS was the plan. Ultimately from there, so you're managing products, you're helping building cloud services. You started Amazon, you're working on the Google, you know, GCP lines of business. How did you end up in venture? Like what, how did you get recruited to that? Or uh, how, how did that happen? It was a bit uh, incidental. It was mostly recruited. I had spent four years at Google and I, I tried to kind of get myself into the most complicated, difficult part. So I was working with a team of mostly PhDs that were doing the, the parallel data processing framework that is called MapReduce Elsewhere. Uh, that's kind of uh, the foundation for data infrastructure today. And Finally decided it was time for me to, to go work at a startup or something and talk to my friends from business school who were in venture about startups to try and find a great place to land. And increasingly after talking to them, it seemed like there was an opportunity to be in, in venture. And about that same time as when Scale came recruiting and it just seemed like a great fit. What was like your first, uh, give me an idea, like what your first assignments were at Scale because you know, you're currently partner. You weren't partner when you started. What would they have you, would they have you researching? I'd love to know what you found and identified because that's kind of cool. Well, so I think every time you hire somebody new, you, you hope that they bring like fresh new ideas, right? Like you're, you're from industry, you, you've been working at these big companies. What's the next big thing? <laughs> and, I, and I knew that, that every new public cloud deal at GCP seemed to start with BigQuery. That was the, um, the, the data warehouse. That was like the kind of gateway drug to the cloud, if you will. 
And every BigQuery deal seemed to involve like you had to bring in a vendor to help move data into BigQuery. So you'd like pull in a third-party vendor to do like some pipeline ETL work to populate the data warehouse. So I just threw out the idea that we should go find an ETL vendor. It was about that time that I was at uh, reInvent, AWS, reInvent, uh, AWS's conference and um, ran into friends who were now at Snowflake. Snowflake wasn't as big a deal then, but I asked them of kind of like their favorite vendor. Uh, they pointed me to Matillion. And after a little research, we, we invested in Matillion, which was probably the first deal I worked on. For those of you guys that are not putting the pieces together, I mean, I'm going to say it, Eric, that's the equivalent of during the gold rush. You being like, well, we should find shovel, shovel sellers. That's right. Exactly. That, that's the equivalent, right? Like everyone goes to BigQuery. They're going to need to ETL their data. Let's find the biggest player in this game or a favorite, as you suggested. Super simple concept. Of course, hard to execute. Of course, you had to do a lot of hard evaluation to find Matillion. But for those listening and that didn't put that together, that's exactly what Eric did. He found, he found the shovel sellers. Yeah. Fortunately, I had the kind of the, the golden miners in my network. So I knew the folks at Snowflake, at BigQuery. Uh, and we did, we, we had to do a little research to figure out what Redshift was doing. And then you're right. And then we just um, sold a bunch of, we bought the shovel sellers. Exactly. <laughs> Shoveling data into the cloud. <laughs> that is smart play, smart play. And for you personally, like, you know, how about for your personal interest? Cause there's also, obviously you have the technical interest. You're, you know, trying to manage your fund portfolio, trying to generate as big a return as possible. How about on, for you personally on the consumer side, is, are there any particular technologies that you're really excited about personally? Uh, you don't have to be an investor in them to be interested in it, but like where you see technology moving, where you're just like, man, this company, they're just being super innovative. There's an unfortunate dearth of like consumer, uh, consumers don't buy software or they haven't historically. And a couple of people have figured out how to do it by selling content, you know, like Netflix or Spotify, because uh, people expect to pay for content. There's a couple of startups that I feel like have kind of figured out, like Kipa is one. This is like a design app. You know, if you want to make like a card for a friend or like a, a, a photo or even a presentation, they give you a bunch of free templates. And then after, you know, you get a little more complex, they start charging you. And, I, and surprisingly, people will sign up to like design little, little things for their friends on the phone. It's not a small company. Canva, it's banana land. I saw the valuation on it recently was what, 40 billion? I, I don't know if that, I don't, yeah, <laughs> I think that's the is. number I saw. Yeah. 40 billion. I was like, what? It turns out that if you unlock, you know, charging random consumers a couple bucks, it's a big market because no one's ever done it before. You're absolutely right. Most products now are layered with a software component, but as far as like pure software on consumer side, yeah, most people balk at like dollar apps. The you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah, the yeah. average Joe, the average Joe sees an app for a dollar, like ugh. Right. <laughs> but some of these are signing up for subscription. Another one that I think is kind of clever is Credit Karma, which again, for as a consumer app, did a great job of find, of like solving the problems for people. In their case, they they figured out how to sell money through advertising, which has been the historic way of doing it. Carfax does over five hundred million in revenue a year. Wow, I think it's more than that. Right. Amazing. I think everybody knows if you want to find out about a used car, you have to use Carfax and they charge you like how they charge us like per report pulled. I think like the first report's free, but most people don't choose one car. They try to select between maybe three cars and it's like each other report is like 39 bucks. And then you can have unlimited reports for a hundred dollars or whatever the number is for a month, hundred dollars a month. And I mean, it's true. People are always looking for cars. So they figured out a data game that, I think some companies are trying to go into it now, but for most people, when it comes to buying a used car, they think I should get a Carfax. It's like ubiquitous with car buying. Yeah. A hundred bucks saves me from getting a lemon or something. Yeah. So other than that, 
and now Canva. I don't know what else people pay for. That's just pretty much pure software. Well, it's not much, but I, th- but I think there's opportunity there. Although that's not what I spend my time on. Eric, it was awesome having you on the show. But before you go, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Eric, this is where we ask you questions outside of the world of work so that our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? Yeah. All right. You said you're visiting Utah right now. You're from University of Utah. So now I got to ask, are you an outdoors person? Sure. Yeah. Well, what's your favorite thing to do outside? Skiing, just to keep with the Utah trend, but there's others. How good are you at skiing? I like to tell people I ski the whole mountain. A black diamond's not a problem for you? No, it's not a problem. Oh, you're pretty good then, man. I've only skied like a handful of times. My friend did take me up to it and told me I, he judged me and said, I think you can do a black diamond. He sent me down it. I basically fell down a mountain. I'm, I'm happy to be alive, but yeah, that sucked. <laughs> so you, you consider yourself a builder. Besides that bicycle, have you ever built anything else? A desk and recently a ladder, actually. A ladder. What made you build a ladder? The kids wanted a trampoline and it didn't come with like the right ladder. And so I uh, made a, like a small four-step ladder for them. <laughs> how, how about your kids? How old are your kids now? Uh, believe it or not, I have four kids and uh, they are ages three to 11. Okay. So we have a similar range. I only have three kids, but you know, I'm in that range. How would you recommend taking care of kids? Because you're currently outnumbered. You got, you know, you got mom, you got you. Unfortunately, you got four kids. You're outnumbered. How do you handle that? You know, the trampoline helps. They, they come with nets and zippers now. So you can kind of just zip it, you know, <laughs> throw them in, zip it up. Uh, we, 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 we just try and wear them out. Uh, the latest idea has been rollerblades. How's that going? It's going great. We lost one uh, chin to stitches, but we've recovered and, and we're back on the blades. Oh, listen, I'm both, I got two sons with stitches under their chin. I'm guessing right under here, right under the chin line. Exactly. Yep. Listen, people, you would think your kids would stick their hands out when they fall, but they don't. They just kind of eat it with their face. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, I want to say thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing a little bit of what you guys look for at Scale Venture Partners. And also, of course, thank you for sharing a little bit about your personal life so that our audience can know you a little bit better. Hope you had a good time today on IT Visionaries. Thank you so much. It was great. 